0: Waiting for Seconds is a podcast that talks about subjects of self-harm, suicide, eating disorders, and other personal subjects. If you don't feel comfortable listening to this podcast alone, listen to it with someone important to you. May that be a teacher, a parent figure, or someone you feel comfortable being with. Please enjoy the rest of the episode.
1: This is Waiting for Seconds. No,
0: second.
2: stop it. What the fuck? I'm introducing.
0: Oh, yeah, you have to do the, oh, yeah.
1: Fuck you. Your introductions are bad. You're a little bitch, man. Go ahead. You're not the one
0: who edits them. Uh, do the,
1: do, I'm not
0: going to mimic it. I'm just going
1: gonna...
0: right. to. No, 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 you go. Keep going. I
1: don't know how it goes from there.
0: This is Waiting for Seconds, the interview podcast where we meet people and ask them who they are and why they are. I'm Shannon Miller, and I'm here with Malcolm Altkelt. And today we, hi Malcolm. Hi hi, Shannon. And today we will be talking with Cam. If you would uh, go ahead and introduce yourself.
3: Hi, I'm Cam. I'm a 22-year-old with one cat named Mochi, a raging caffeine addiction, and a music taste that's been described as sad hop.
1: And as her friend, that is a very accurate description. Uh, Cam and I have been friends for uh, a couple of years now. We uh, met entirely online during the height of the pandemic through some mutual friends and a shared love of tabletop RPGs. Uh, we've been playing some things uh, on and off ever since then. And uh, well, uh, we've got a couple questions for you, Cam. I'm gonna
0: I'm gonna break the ice. Uh, break the ice. What's What's Mochi like? How's your little kitty like? Tell us uh... about your little kitty.
3: Well, she's to preface, she's fantastic. I love her very much. But, um,
0: I knew there was a butt coming.
3: She's a long haired cat and she's Uh. a very messy long haired cat. (laughs) So, she's a little bit of work, but like, she's very fun and she's very cuddly. Although you can't pick her up, she would like to cuddle you from like beside you. She must never be on top of you. She must be beside, but she needs to have physical contact.
0: <laughs> that's that's kind of weird. To have it a cat is. like that. What
1: a weird cat.
3: She's a very strange cat, but she's <laughs> my cat, so.
1: and you She's love your her. cat and you love her.
3: I love her very much. <laughs> uh,
1: you adopted her when she was a kitten, right?
3: Yeah, she was only, she was 12 weeks when I got her. Oh, I got her last year. And yeah. oh. so she's... She's actually just turned a year old in October, and I got, picked her up at, like, the end of January, start of February. And now she lives in my room, eats ridiculously expensive food, and <laughs> has, like, like, I use, like, special organic non-clay litter for her, stuff like that.
1: Aww, you know, she, she's picky.
3: Yeah, she's very picky, but she's my spoiled little baby, and I love her.
1: You got to spoil your little baby. That's just the right way to do it.
3: Exactly.
0: Have you ever had other animals? I is...
3: I have. When I was younger, I had so I had a dog when I was younger. Uh her name was Rosalie. Uh mm-hmm. she was a cockapoo, it's a cocker spaniel poodle mix. Um and I had her for a few years, but just kind of due to circumstance and me being really young, I was about 12 at the time. I moved cross country and unfortunately the place we moved to is not pet friendly, but we also couldn't afford anything else at the time. so Mm. you know, we actually friends of ours, uh, she was a trainer for special needs dogs and they Mm -hmm. like to have other like quote unquote normal dogs around sometimes. So Mm. she offered to bring her in and have her be part of her program. And, so my last few updates on her a couple of years back where she was living her best life. She had a bunch of dogs to play with every day. So that actually <laughs> made me really happy.
1: Well, that's, good for that's her. Good.
3: Yeah.
0: Uh, you actually mentioned that you, you moved. Uh, how has the place like you've grown up really affected you? You said you were moving. What was the reason and did it change your childhood? Make it better? How did that? How did that help you?
3: Ah, uh, so for me, I grew up in a very small town in Ontario, um, which is kind of—it's the largest province uh, population-wise in Canada. Mm. Um, but I grew up in a very small town population, like less than four thousand people. It's at least when I left there, it was a blink and you miss it kind of highway town. They had a school and some smaller things, but you know, got a grocery store when I was about 6, that was a pretty big deal then. <laughs> got a Tim Hortons, which is like the American the Canadian equivalent of like Dunkin Donuts when I around when I moved away, uh, which was also a huge deal for a town like that. Um, but kind of growing up in that space, it wasn't it wasn't the best environment for me. Um unfortunately, like, you know, schools there were really poorly funded um you know there was a lot of poverty a lot of kids you know I was one of the fortunate ones that I always had food on the table and a roof over my head but like there were a lot of kids who were very food insecure which you know is just heartbreaking especially now that I'm older and kind of have a better understanding of some of the programs and why they were in place you know in my primary school Mm. and then just generally like I guess it had that small town mentality of that anti-other, anti-change, very anti-leaving kind of mentality.
1: Yeah. And how do you think that, has that affected your politics or your view on the world in some way?
3: I mean, it's absolutely affected my politics and my view on the world, I think. For me, one of the hardest things has been kind of that transitioning from that kind of political landscape where you grow up to where when I moved when I was about 12, I moved to a a larger city, Edmonton, in Alberta, Canada, um, which is still like one of the more it's, I guess, the more right leaning of all the provinces. But moving to a city just drastically changed a lot of my worldview. I met different people who I'd never met anyone like them before, at least not who'd openly been, you know, gay or bisexual or trans, anything like that, I hadn't met those people before who were open about it. Mm -hmm. And it really just changed my whole worldview. And that's something that I think is kind of that cognitive dissonance of growing up in such a conservative environment, and then moving to an environment where I realized, hey, I can do these things. And, you know, there's no longer that dogmatic association of you know, being gay will make you a terrible person.
2: Yeah.
1: That's uh, very interesting. Uh, so you uh, you clearly have moved around a lot, or at least a little bit. But uh, do you do things like uh, travel for pleasure rather than for necessity?
3: Yes, I travel for pleasure quite a bit. Um, you know, thankfully, in the years that I've grown up, my parents have found themselves in a much better financial situation. Over the years to where um, we've started traveling pretty regularly, I get to travel with them. Uh, they're currently on a boat in the Bahamas, and I'll be joining them in about a month and a half. I'll be joining them in December and sending Christmas out there. Uh, we've regularly gone to Hawaii. We've gone to the Bahamas quite a bit. Uh, we've taken one trip over to Europe, which was probably one of the best months of my life. Um traveled through a couple of the different parts of the united states and a lot of canada as well so it's absolutely something i view as important and kind of my next big travel goal is i'm hoping to do a solo trip in the next year or two to japan is my kind of goal i would really love to go and see the see it when this cura blossoms are blooming
1: Mm -hmm. hell yeah yeah it's a beautiful time well uh uh, clearly that's been at least some form of uh, formative for you. Do you think it's like really changed the way that you see the world, seeing the other places and how they function, or is it just like a a good time?
3: I think that traveling is one of the things that has changed me the most as a person to not only get to see people, you know, it's one thing to learn about a culture in a theoretical sense when you're reading a textbook or even when you're watching a YouTube video of someone being like a day in the life in my you know, a small town in Greece, or something like that, versus yeah. when you go there and you get to live and experience it, you know, like when I went to Italy and we were in kind of some of the small towns, like the non touristy areas, and there's just like a two hour nap time throughout the day, and things are open <laughs> much later, but yeah, there's two hours and all the shops are closed, and everybody's gonna go take a break and have a nap and It really felt like a much healthier lifestyle than especially we lead in North America mm. um. And a big part of, for me, traveling has been this whole idea that I feel so very privileged to be able to travel, and I want to take advantage of that. I want to see the world. Because, I mean, realistically, we're living in a generation and time where you can see the world, depending on how you prioritize and if you have enough disposable income, which, you know, unfortunately some people don't, but for the people who do it's an absolutely fantastic opportunity. And I'd say anybody who can travel should do it at least once in their lifetime.
0: What's been your most like favorite place that you've gone to so far?
3: That's hard. Because, OK, I'm an art history major. I have finished my degree uh, the spring of this year. And so I loved going to Italy. I got to see go through pretty much every art gallery there, top to bottom, spent about five to eight hours in each museum, <laughs> um, bored my parents to death because they wanted to get out of there and go to like wineries <laughs> or things like that. You know, um, but for me instead, that was what I enjoyed. But also Hawaii has a certain amount of sentimentality to it. It's where my mm-hmm. parents got married and I got to go to the wedding. It's the first place I traveled where like I had to like take an airplane that went over water.
2: Mm, <laughs> uh, first yeah.
3: time I really got in the ocean. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a close tie between those two.
1: I mean, well, uh, both of those places are truly lovely.
3: I would recommend it if you ever get the chance to. Either of them are great options. Flip a coin.
0: <laughs> I definitely want to go see Italy. I I went uh to Hawaii one time. It was like for about a week for spring break. It was like a choir tour thing. And that was a lot of fun, but Italy is is definitely somewhere I want to go. So Um now you're talking kind of about your world view with like going to different places. What what is your world view or or maybe Maybe let's change that question. Are you more spiritual or or religious in any way? Um, and has that changed when you have like gone to these different places? Has that like made you rethink maybe where you were now in your spiritual walk or or what whatever you were doing?
3: I don't know if necessarily travel is what changed it. A big part of what changed my beliefs in terms of spirituality and religion and things like that has been partially like seeing the world through travel has helped as well as just experiencing the world while living in a city experiencing the world while living as a young adult woman um but a big part of that was also I minored in religious studies and I spent quite a few years like even prior to that kind of having a bit of a struggle with what it was I believed because trying to assess it, I guess the whole idea of if there is something after this, what would be after this? What kind of you know being? If this world is designed, how does a being design this world and then remain a conscionable and benevolent actor? Mm. Things like that. And so, kind of after you know <laughs> taking about twenty courses, reading quite a few holy books, I've came to the decision essentially that. I believe that there's something. I don't Mm -hmm. necessarily believe I have any idea what or who that would be. If that makes any sense, I've... Yeah. yeah. I've decided that there is something after this life, and you know, whether that's hopeful thinking, whether I'm right or wrong, I guess I'll find out, or (laughs) cease to exist and by default kind of find out. Or kind of figure out what it is that I believe in because I think that's it's something that you kind of have to struggle with I think any faith accepted without thinking about it or asking yourself why you believe in that necessarily I don't know if that can be true
1: yeah Hmm. well uh you bring up these kind of two alternate endings: the the end where we just cease to exist, and the end where, well, there's something after this. Um, that kind of lie on the opposite side of the scale, one that's an I, maybe idealized or at least a good version, and one that's kind of uh sadder. Uh, and all in all, you seem to lean towards the one side, the more idealized version, but. In general, life, I'd love to know if that stays the same. Do you consider yourself to be an optimist or a pessimist in the way that you live your life or your spirituality in general?
3: I don't know if I'm necessarily like a hard optimist or a hard pessimist. The reason that I more so believe that there is something after this is part of it is a certain degree of wishful thinking. Because for many, you know, for quite a few years, I was of the opinion that, well, Science has, you know, thus far failed to prove an afterlife despite dozens, if not hundreds of scientists trying to prove some kind of God or afterlife or or something that is, you know, in a way supernatural. (laughs) And that's been unable to be proven. However, I kind of took analysis of my worldview and it made me sad to think of the world that way and it it really, to me, became a question of, do I want to hold this view that I think you know maybe the most congruent with the reality that we know right now, or do I want to choose to have a worldview that is going to make me happy, you know, that doesn't harm others, and that you know, could be right? and I decided that there was something after this because I want there to be. And because I hope that you know, we don't just get 80 years of this short life and then there's nothing. I want there to be something after. And maybe that's wishful thinking on my part and maybe it's naive, but it's a worldview that makes me happy.
1: And either way, it doesn't harm anybody.
3: Exactly. Like, at the end of this life, if I die and there is nothing after this, it won't have harmed me to have believed in an afterlife. Yeah. And it won't have harmed anyone else. It's
2: very,
0: very wonderfully said. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I really like that, and I appreciate you sharing that with us. You're So what I'm getting is you don't have a specific religion. You've done your countless... of. Uh, Hours of research in college, and there's no like real uh, religious that you like stand by. Is that what I'm understanding?
3: Yeah, there's no religion I necessarily stand by. There are certain beliefs about how I should live my life that I agree with. Hmm. You know, I believe in the ideas of doing no harm, doing unto others what I would have done unto myself, of you know being a positive member of society, of trying to leave this world a better place then it was you know i guess entrusted to us i'm a very firm believer in the fact that living a good life and through good moral action we attain a better life for ourselves and for those around us and so that's kind of how i've tried to live my life you know we all have our own shortcomings but
0: yeah now, were you religious in your childhood? Like, uh, sorry. I grew up uh,
3: Christian. Actually, I grew up Baptist. Um, I oh, went to two church okay. camps a summer. Uh, Hell yeah! <laughs> you know, grew up very, very Baptist. Um, so that was definitely an interesting experience, especially kind of struggling with. I don't know. It, are you? Did you grow up Baptist or Christian? I grew. Up,
0: I grew up Seventh Day Adventist.
3: Oh, God.
0: So I'm in a different world of hell.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I heard... Wasn't there something about, like, the world ending a few years ago, and it starting, like...
0: Oh, like, uh, 2012?
3: Yeah, and, like, December wasn't there some Seventh-day Adventism stuff, though, with the world ending a few years ago?
0: You know, I, I'm more non-denominational. I'm still Christian. Um, I cannot recall... If that was ever a thing besides like back in the it 1800s, something something Miller, uh, the Millerites, kind of like an Adventist movement with Jesus doing a second coming. And then it didn't work out. I but on it honest, recently. No, I don't know.
3: Yeah, fair enough. I, I have a friend who is a former Seventh-day Adventist and has told me some very wild stories. So I'm. Assuming you might have some interesting ones, but I don't know. It could also have just been the branch that she was in as well.
0: There is there is some wild stories, but there's nothing that I particularly know of. Um, but back to what you were saying about being Baptist, and uh, that's how you kind of grew up.
3: Yeah, like, I definitely didn't grow up in, like, an extremely religious household. Like, we said grace over dinner... You know, we believed in God. I had a copy of the Bible that I read sometimes, but it wasn't necessarily, like, a strictly religious household in the same way. Like, the restriction of media in my household wasn't due to religious reasons. It would often be, like, yeah, you're not allowed to play Call of Duty because that video game is abhorrently violent. You know, things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. I was allowed to read Harry Potter and Aragon and A lot of those books that were kind of in the banned category because of, you know, magic and witches and wizards and things Mm -hmm. like that. But it was definitely interesting, especially kind of having some... I had some family members who were much more Baptist than us Mm -hmm. and kind of that dichotomy of belief as well as, like, unfortunately, judgment within the community was... Something we dealt with because we weren't as, you know, we didn't go to church every Sunday. We, you know, didn't quite live the same lifestyle that people would want you to. But Or, I think, or
0: expecting you to live. Yeah,
3: or expecting yeah. you to live, for sure, because it was an expectation, like, to you know, to be giving, like, an 8% of your income tithe, which, you know, especially it was... Looking back, it's heartbreaking to see all the really poor families who are giving 8% of their income to the church and things like that, which it's just, it's difficult to look back at. Because I think that there are inevitably a lot of flaws with organized religion, and that's really what started my journey down um, not really believing in the Christian God anymore was, unfortunately, my experience, especially with organized religion, has been... A negative one, and it's not unique to me, unfortunately, it has been something that I've heard extremely similar stories of, you know, kind of the hurt and feelings of unwelcomeness within certain communities mm. that is extended. You know it's not just the Christian community. it's in a lot of, if not all religious communities, but I think that's kind of been my problem. Is when you read certain holy texts, you know, things look great on paper, but unfortunately, there is an inevitable othering in a lot of the times in these organized religious settings.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, I think that's a a very appropriate understanding of religion. It often can have value to people, but often that value is outshadowed. Yeah. Well, uh, I'd love to ask you a little bit about your understanding less of your religious beliefs, but of your more societal and political beliefs. Um, specifically, I want to ask you about masculinity and femininity. Uh as you probably know you're the first woman we've actually had on here uh, you know whether that is celebration um but definitely I celebration wanna know... <laughs> i want to know about your uh thoughts on society's view of men and women in particular um obviously masculinity is this uh this concept femininity is this concept that are well defined and uh often forced on the people that they apply to um but i want to know about your thoughts about masculinity and femininity as subjects as well as the men and women who embody them
3: yeah i think that's it's definitely hard because i think there is definitely a degree of you know we have these the ideal you know, stereotypical gender roles that have been around for ages mm-hmm. and ages of, you know, male breadwinner, woman homemaker, and what those roles entail. But I think what's really interesting when you dig down in it into it for me has been how those roles have kind of contributed to the breakdown of, you know, modern day society, the modern day workforce, what home life home life balance looks like as, you know, a person living in the twenty first century. And what I've kind of learned over time was that a lot of this division of labor that was done in, like, a stereotypical household is now kind of being really used against people. Because if you look at it, like, the stereotypical household used to be, you know, you'd have a woman whose job was to raise the kids, to clean the house, to, you know, do the dishes, to Mm -hmm. do every single part of homemaking And the man's job was to work like eight to 10 hours a day, five days a week. And to then, you know, come home and basically be pampered by his wife. When the reality of the situation is now for most people is, especially with inflation in the post-pandemic economy, is a lot of the times you need a dual income household. But in that Mm -hmm. dual income household, you're still expected to be working eight to 10 hour days, five days a week. But now you don't have a person at home who's doing all of the household and emotional labor. Mm-hmm. And so my kind of problem with this whole idea of what it means to be a man or a woman in today's society is that there is a certain extension of how this ideal has contributed to a disproportionate amount of labor. Like if you look at it, the breakdown of daily labor by gender, women do, on average, more labor per day because there is still this expectation of. You know, you get home, and if a man and a woman get home together, in most households, it's still going to be the woman cooking. Mm -hmm. In most households, the woman is going to do the majority of the cleaning. You know, of course, there are exceptions. I'm not saying this is even the vast majority, but it's the majority. Mm -hmm. And so for me, being a woman living in today's world, it's a very hard point to navigate because I'm a woman who wants to be a mother in a few years. You know, I'd like to raise children. But I also would like to make money and have a financially stable household. So it feels, to a certain extent, especially as a woman, like you're put in this kind of catch twenty two situation where damned if you do, damned if you don't. You know, you're uh-huh. if you choose to go back to the workforce immediately after having a child, you're heartless and abandoning them, and you know, hiring a nanny. How could you? Whereas if you choose to be a stay-at-home mom, you're being, you know, lazy, you're not being a girl boss, things like that. Whereas also there's these massive amounts of economic expectations on men. Like, I have no idea what it is, but every time I have offered to pay for, like, a first date with a guy, (laughs) I swear that I have just, like, killed someone in front of him. Or, like, (laughs) you either get this reaction of, like, oh my god, thank you, no one's ever offered to do that. Or you get this really weird reaction of, like, what, you think I'm not enough of a man to pay for dinner? And I'm like, no, I'm offering to pay for dinner, because, like, shit's expensive, man.
1: Yeah. Yeah, shit's expensive. Shit is, in fact, expensive.
0: I know I've definitely had that reaction of, like, I never said it out loud, but it's that reaction of, like, does she think I'm not, I don't, I don't have enough money? But it it it's kind of changed as society has gone on. I mean, there's been dates that I've had where the, the woman will pay half, and I'm, like, totally down with that.
3: I think it's almost, and maybe this is a little strange to say, it's an interesting litmus test as a woman. And, like, when I was, hmm. was dating, I currently have a significant other... Um, But when I was dating, an interesting litmus test is that whole idea of offering to pay for the first date, because kind of seeing how a guy especially reacts to that offer, it kind of informs a lot about what, you know, a future relationship would look like, Mm -hmm. in my opinion, because like, even if I offer Mm -hmm. to pay, and they're like, okay, let's go house, versus, you know, they freak out, or, you know, those different options, it's, it's informative in a way. And, you know, I just hope it comes to a point where hopefully, you know, years from now, it won't be an expectation for, you know, the children of our generation, where, Mm -hmm. you know, women aren't expected to be putting in all the household labor and men are expected to be putting in all the extra financial burden.
2: But,
3: I mean... I'd like it to be that way, but sometimes when you look at the news and society, it's not exactly hopeful.
1: Yeah. Those changes take a lot of effort and aren't exactly easy to make happen.
3: Yeah. But well, hopefully they happen.
1: Uh, hopefully they do. Um, I'd love to ask you about uh, you mentioned your family a little bit earlier. I know you're going out to uh bahamas with them in a couple weeks but uh, i'd love to ask you more about your family how has your family life been has it been generally happy generally uh i mean difficult experiences that you care to talk about um do you think that it was a good childhood experience or do you think that there were uh, a lot more flaws than the average person's
3: i mean I would say I'm a relatively lucky person, but also, you know, inevitably the flaws that we do find are what concern us the most, because, Mm -hmm. you know, I can look at some other kids and be like, wow, your parents were absolutely awful to you. I, you know, that's terrible. And then I can look at my own childhood and be like, these are some awful moments within my childhood that definitely have affected me. But also my relationship with my parents, especially as I've gotten older, has been, you know it's very much a loving relationship. It is mm-hmm. you know, my parents have always been here for me, you know, no matter my screw- ups, no matter my choices, they're very much people who believe that, you know, I'm their kid and they will stick by me, no matter what. Uh-huh. And for that, I'm super appreciative. Um You know, but I also did grow up. So I grew up, so when I say my parents, I guess, to break it down, the people I'm referring to are the two are the people I call mom and dad. Um, Mm -hmm. My dad is not my biological father. My biological father is the man who raised me until I was about 11 um, along with my mother. Uh, He is not a good person. Unfortunately, he was a abusive person. um, And I had a lot of negative childhood experiences associated with him. Um, I've recently actually finally made the decision to cut him off from my life. Mm -hmm. Which has been one of the most freeing decisions I've ever made. (laughs) Um, And, you know, my mom did what she had to to get me out of there and to get me safe. And she risked and sacrificed a lot to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But for me, my family life has been, you know, there are obviously stressors, but it's also nice that at least my parents have had Mm -hmm. an open door policy with me is how they describe it, which is... You know, if there's ever something I need to talk to them about, if I've done something wrong, mm-hmm. if I need to do anything, they're always there. They even had the policy of when I was younger and like, you know, when you start going to parties, you start drinking for the first time and things like that. They always had a policy that no matter what, if I just called them middle of the night, doesn't matter. They'll, you know, get up, they'll find a way to come and get me and pick me up. No questions asked as long as I call them.
1: That's very good of them. Mm-hmm. That's a, it seems like a very healthy relationship with a lot of, I mean, obviously no relationship can ever be perfect, but very, very well maintained and, uh, you know, smart. Hey, well done.
3: a big part of maintaining a family relationship, at least in our case, is like all of us see a therapist. Um, oh, yeah. I see a therapist about once every six weeks. Um, I don't quite know the frequency of their schedules, but... For me, that's been a big part of maintaining you know my mental health and also just having better communication strategies, having better strategies for coping with stress, having just mm-hmm. different ways to go about your worldview has been very helpful in a way. Um, honestly, I'd recommend therapy to almost anyone as you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just because I think that. Sometimes having another person take that look in and help you parse out your life can be very helpful. It's what I Mm -hmm. found helpful, especially like when I've gone through some hard times, having someone else help you figure out, you know, what is your fault? What in reality is not your fault? What's no one's fault? And then also, how do you solve issues in a way that is going to make everyone's life livable and happy? And maybe learning a little bit about, like, what styles of communication people need.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, is that, you mentioned that you, uh, there's some stressors in your family earlier, and uh, your therapy, is that your primary way of dealing with those stressors, uh, both with your family and in your life in general?
3: Like, therapy helps a little bit. My primary way of dealing with stress on a day-to-day basis, though, I, is League of Legends. Um, oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> ah, yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I I'm a support main, so you know, I get beat up on by my ADC and the enemy ADC. Ah, yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I play video games to get rid of my stress because if I yell and scream at my computer, you know, not in all chat, just at the computer, uh it's not going to harm anyone and it's a good way for me to just be like, god, I hate everything and let it out and let it out in a way that is, you know, non-harmful and also it's helpful to me mm-hmm.
0: do you play a lot of video games
3: i play a decent amount of video games it's like i mostly play stuff with friends
2: mm-hmm. to be
3: honest like i've been playing some minecraft recently i started a farm under a glacier because that's how you farm right yeah, um apparently. <laughs> i started you know to like, I play, obviously, a lot of League of Legends. I've done a couple playthroughs where I'll, like, stream to some friends, like, of different Mass Effect playthroughs. Sometimes where I'll let them make the decisions and my Shepard's a dick.
1: Mm. Sometimes
3: where I make the decision and my Shepard's a very nice person, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
3: um, but a big thing for me has always been, like, I think of gaming as a, a way of, I guess, connecting with people. Mm. I... You know, I have always been someone who's struggled in a way with in-person connection. I struggle with body language quite a bit. I sometimes struggle with tone as well. Just like understanding people and making sure that, you know, I'm giving off the right signals back. Mm-hmm. Um, which isn't, I'm not always successful, but I'm trying my best. Uh, but a big thing for me has been the nice part about at least spending most of my social time on the internet has been I get to know people in a way that, you know, it's different than in person, for sure. But I definitely feel that same amount of connection. Like, there are people I've met online who have changed my life so much more than I ever could have imagined. Mm -hmm. And it's been a big part of kind of not only forming my personality and my worldviews, but also experiencing... And meeting people who, you know, without this magic, you know, internet box that we have, I never would have met. And kind of worldviews I never would have considered.
1: Interesting that uh, a lot of the people that you've never actually met in person can change who you are in such a dynamic and involved way.
3: Not to mention a lot of the people who I've met on the internet and who I haven't met in person Know probably more about me than some of my in person friends, like okay. they know more of what my interests are and what makes me happy and what makes me sad and how I do my day to day life
1: Now, do you think that's uh because like there's less of a filter on the internet? there's less reason to hide those things, less possibility to be judged, or is that just a uh...
3: I think there is less of a filter in a certain way because. There are certain things I can't say to you if you're a person I know in person because, say, like, I can't tell you every single detail about how my work day was mm-hmm. just because, you know, there's certain confidentiality, things like that. Whereas when you're a person I meet online, if I don't say any names and I just say, wow, I dealt with an absolute asshole today oh, who had no. no idea what they were doing. then I can kind of talk about that. I can also talk about, to a certain degree, like at least my experience on the internet has been, you know, you can get into that heavy shit in a way that you can't in real life, where like if you get into the, you know, the heavy shit of, hi, uh, what's your childhood trauma? (laughs) On the internet it's almost a thing of most people are much more willing to share and it's a much more reciprocal relationship whereas if you ever, like a lot of the times my when I've been asked about my childhood trauma and or anything else that's happened in my life in person, and you give them that real response. You get the, oh, that is so sad. And they have this like panicked look of, I don't know what to say here. Please, can we move on? So. Maybe it's just because on the Internet, I can't see the panicked look, but at least
1: it's. <laughs> it's hidden from you.
3: Exactly. If I can't tell you're panicking, I think you're encouraging me.
1: Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Can't definitely, see it or don't exist.
2: Definitely a good way to look at things. I, I, I mean, I can agree. I've never actually met Malcolm like in person, uh-huh. but he definitely is considered like family to me. Or, or just like, just has that similar relationship that I could call him family.
3: I mean, that's kind of a big part about family, though, is I'm at least of the opinion that you choose your family more than family is defined by blood or distance or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Like the people I would consider my family are not necessarily my closest blood relatives. They're the people, you know, it's my parents, you know, the people who, you know, the friends who have helped encourage me to grow, who've helped me through, you know things like the bad times and the good times and helping me move for like the seventh time and
1: <laughs>
3: so much moving so many boxes and so much like of that stupid clear tape that just gets stuck <laughs> on everything. God, and that clear you know, tape gun number one investment. If you're planning to be someone who moves around a lot in life, get a tape gun. Yeah. It makes life so much easier. It is obnoxiously loud though. So, like, don't do that if you have like a quiet policy wherever you live, because that thing sounds like halfway to a chainsaw. So it's a give and take.
2: <laughs> yeah. But. That's interesting that you say uh, your family is more is more than blood. You get to pick your family. Does that? How do how do you pick your family if you don't mind me asking? I mean,
3: for me, how I've picked my family has been, you know, it is partially the people who you choose to spend your time with. It's who you choose to dedicate your, you know, emotional labor to. Like, if I only have, you know, it's like that kind of spoon theory in a way, but for families where my family is the people I've chosen. I've chosen as people who I view as worthy of emotional investment and who I would like to keep in my life, who Mm. we have this kind of reciprocity of respect and love and care for one another. And for me, a big part of family is that fact that, you know, we choose each other. Family is not just because you're not here because you have to be here. You're here because you want to be like, you Mm -hmm. know, that whole joke it used to be like, and it started for, like especially in american sitcoms i think in like the 50s and stuff of like this whole idea of like the man and wife who hate each other so much Mm -hmm. but they're married um and that they're family but god they hate each other and you know you hate your in-laws you hate your parents and for me that's not what is family your family doesn't have to be defined by the blood in your veins it's defined by the people you choose so you know if you want to have a family You know, you got to put effort into loving and caring for that family. Mm -hmm. And that's what's going to make it be a family. You know, you don't just get to family accidentally. You make a conscientious choice, in my mind. And, you know, that may not be a view shared by everyone else, but... At least for me, my focus when it comes to choosing someone to be what I would consider family has been... This idea that I want to spend time with them, I like them, I care about them, and we have this mutual feeling of love and admiration, and, you know, we want to help one another. We want to see each other succeed.
2: That's very well put.
1: Very beautiful, too. I think that that's a very healthy view on family. To understand that it may not be about the blood, but it's about the the love and the care. And without those things, it's not really a family.
3: Yeah, exactly. Like, you can be related to someone, but that doesn't make them family. Being related to someone does not entitle them to your love or your care or your time, Mm -hmm. realistically. Being related to someone means that if you take a test on 23 and me and you both spit in a tube, you get a really awkward email <laughs> notification.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and really awkward email notifications do not make family.
3: They do not.
1: <laughs> um. Well, you know, I would love to ask you, Uh, it's come up a lot, uh, both in uh, the former episodes and in this one about this concept of nature and nurture. Nature, obviously, being how you're born and who you are innately, almost. Uh, and nature being who you've been formed to be. Um, with your talk of family being not blood, but rather found, does it feel fair to say that you are resolutely on the side of nature?
3: I mean, I would say that would fit nurture, because in my mind, nurture has always been...
1: Oh, I said nature you, you yeah. Did, you, you did. You was, did. You, you said nature or nature.
2: Ah. <laughs> so you would you would say you follow fall on the side of nurture.
3: Yeah, I fall on the side of nurture. I fall on the side of kind of I believe how you were raised and the lived experiences that you have are formed. Kind of they form you and you you know it's that mutual ripple effect. You know, this isn't to say, like, there are cases where, you know, unfortunately, nature is inherently limiting or inherently kind of impacting how a person can live and the experiences they can have. But I think that we are far more defined by our experiences than we are by, you know, our nature if we're born that way. It's like that whole idea of, like, born evil. I don't think anything is necessarily born evil or born good. I think that the experiences someone has are, and then the actions they take thereafter, which are formed from those experiences, that make you, you know, a primarily, you know, good acting or a primarily bad acting person.
2: So there's no inherent, like, when you're born, there's no. You're not evil and you're not good. It's until you've made or you've gotten those conscious decisions that this is how you want to live your life. And in other people's eyes, it might be bad or it might be good. But for, for you, you just look at it as, that. stop me if I'm wrong, but you look at it as, uh, depending on who you, you surround yourself with, will make you into those choices of good or bad.
3: Yeah, and I think that's inevitably how it is. I mean, the five people you talk to the most will end up informing parts of your language, even in the how you start to speak to other people. So, like, if the five people you talk to most all, you know, are people who have very fervent, you know, let's say they have very fervent racist beliefs, you're more likely to end up becoming racist. You talk to five people who are communists, you're more likely to end up a communist. We're informed by the decisions that we make of who we surround ourselves with. It's kind of like how that whole idea of when you start like reading a lot of the times, the first few books you read will end up being kind of that same author style will be what you gravitate towards. It's that same thing of, you know... If someone's favorite book is Harry Potter, when they start writing as an author, their first few drafts might have some similarities to J.K. Rowling's work. This doesn't mean necessarily it's going to be super similar, but you might actually run into these similarities. And, you know, we're social creatures. It's that whole idea of, like, your mom joking, you know, if all your friends jump off a bridge, would you too? And it's like, well, you know, realistically, as a social being... Yeah, eventually, if all my friends jump off the bridge, like, I may as well join them. Can't be that bad if they all do it.
1: (laughs) I mean, they survived.
3: They survived. There's water under there, you know?
1: My friends aren't idiots. Well, at least I don't. (laughs) Well,
2: I I may be an idiot, but.
1: Yeah, but we love you for it.
2: Oh, thanks. Now, I'm going to move on to a completely different question. But, uh,. I heard at the very beginning that you guys played a lot of tabletop RPGs together. Um, Why do you play D&D? And uh, what really got you started? Or what was the reason that you really liked it? Maybe you can talk more on that.
3: Okay, probably... Okay, where I got started is probably a good place to go. What got me started on D&D was my high school math teacher. Um... (laughs) who honestly, like, sh- she was my teacher for only about a year, but she was probably one of the more impactful teachers for me, was because, first of all, I'd been in the pre-med program and very quickly realized I couldn't do calculus. I was trying my hardest and couldn't. Mm-hmm. My I was getting, like, tutoring sessions, doing everything. Just didn't work for my brain. But she'd suggested, so she tried starting up a and d club, and getting that running at our school, which was a little bit difficult to get going. But she also suggested to those of us who wanted to play uh, to listen to some D&D podcasts, which the primary one that she recommended to us was uh, Mabim Bam, My Brother, My Brother yeah, and Me. Yeah, Adventure yes. Zone. So Adventure Zone. Yeah, I listened to the entire first campaign, the balance arc. I loved it. Um, it's totally not by the rules, but I think that's what made not it the most all. fun. Like, I remember there was one time where someone cast like six level like six spells in like one day. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, this is fine. Yeah. But it was it was just a fun podcast and that I listened to, and then I listened to some critical role, of course, like most people have, and then a couple <sighs> other D&D podcasts. And I got the opportunity to start playing D&D kind of with some friends toward the end of high school online. Kind of like when we were first trying out, trying to do like D&D where we like rolled with like Discord bots and it was terrible. (laughs) And then I started playing at my university's D&D club, which was actually really fun. I got an amazing DM who like, it was my first in-person game. Super exciting. Made it this very interesting campaign. It started as Out of the Abyss and then just morphed into a very like, I think there was a lot of homebrew in it. And just an interesting world with so many twists and turns and been one of my most, like, favorite experiences doing D&D. And then I met some friends online through university who, like, kind of linked me up with the domino effect, you know, six degrees of separation. And there was this guy called Austin who was doing a Star Wars d and I had never mm. played Star Wars before. However, I was enjoying the heck out of D&D. And I decided I wanted to play. So yeah. I basically just asked him, I'm like, hey, do you have an open slot? Like, are you willing to let me like join? I've never played Star Wars before. I've never watched Star Wars before. I have, I know nothing. I just want to play. And he was like, Yeah, sure, fuck it. Yeah. Um, and I got into it. And then it was through them that I met uh Malcolm and kind of went down that rabbit hole to now I play with Malcolm about once a week. I have another D&D game that plays on Sundays every week that's still a Star Wars D&D game. It's mostly the same, relatively the same crew that we started with, uh, right at the start of the pandemic. Um, and then I've run my own games as a DM, but the primary reason I play D&D is partially it is absolutely a social game. I have made so many friends through D&D. I've got to experience just different people, how their minds work, their worldviews, and it has been fantastic. Um, but the other primary thing I really get to experience through D&D is a certain amount of escapism, you know? Sadly, yeah. I am not a, you know, Dexterity 20 rogue who can do, like, <laughs> 17 backflips and, like, you know, sneak in through a secret layer. you know, nor am I a wizard who can cast Fireball, which, like would be pretty cool um but it's that whole idea of getting to go to that world other than your own it's part of why i loved reading so much as a kid was you know i'd imagine myself like you know when i was reading percy jackson it was like what would you know you're imagining yourself as like what would you do if you're a demigods kid and you know you take like all those like shitty like you know those like homemade fan quizzes that existed in like the early 2010s
2: uh-huh. Oh, I did all of them. What oh kind yeah, of demigod like God, would I be under or like, like who... what kind of
3: demigod? What house were you in Hogwarts? <laughs> what oh, fucking yeah. like
2: Gryffindor? Old,
3: like what district would you be from from the Hunger Games? Like all that shit. Like I did that, and I loved it. And I think that's kind of formed my now love of D and D, especially because like when we say D and D, I'm not necessarily always referring to you know. Dungeons and Dragons it's kind of more became an overarching term like I play
2: uh-huh.
3: I'm currently playing like Cyberpunk as Red. a system yes Cyberpunk Red and then we've also played like we did like a homebrew that was based on Cyberpunk for Mass Effect we've played um
1: Vampire the Masquerade Vampire
3: the Masquerade that's a really fun system I that's quite enjoyed that we've played a version of Vampire Hunters which was also really cool uh we also did Oh my gosh, its name is slipping my mind. It's that trilogy. It's a fantastic trilogy of video Lord games.
1: Of the oh, oh I uh, the um, Witcher? oh, um
3: Dragon Age. Dragon Age
1: Dragon
2: Age.
3: <laughs> yeah, like we played Dragon Age. Awful system, but actually it was so, <laughs> it, like awful system. It was fun to play though.
1: I mean, that's one of those that's really, it does show that social aspect is that that system itself may not have been any good, but it was still a really fun game because you were doing it with the people that you wanted to do it with. And in a way you wanted to,
3: right? Exactly. Like we're getting to play these characters who are just, you know, it's whatever you want to do. You know, I'm playing this medic whose parents wanted her to be a warrior. You just met up with these people who were like, you know, another mage and two dwarves. And was like, well, guess I'm thrown in with this lot.
1: <laughs> yeah, Motley and crew. I,
3: exactly. But I think that's the beauty of D&D is that also you get to make these characters and you get to almost, you know, live little snapshots of lives other than your own. Mm-hmm. And you get to experience those and think about how you would react if you were this person, how does that kind of change and how, you know, you as a person both grow by, you know, talking with and experiencing these other people that you play with, Mm. but also how, you know, D and D has kind of just shaped so much of my own life because it's become kind of one of those things I look forward to. Like I do it every Sunday night. I joke to my mom that, you know, this is me going to church. It's a place where I find my own personal version of I guess it feels kind of home, if that makes sense, would be the best way I'd describe getting to play D&D. It makes me feel happy, and it's just a fun experience.
1: It's a chosen home, much like the chosen family that plays it with you.
3: Exactly.
2: (laughs) It's that community, it's that camaraderie to to share just a, an hour or maybe two or four or whatever. Just to... oh,
3: those are some weak sauce numbers.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm i sorry. I play D and D for that amount of time. And it's casual. I'm a casual, yeah. but you, you do it for the camaraderie camaraderie to be with like your, your built family and just the people you've surrounded yourself with. And it's just, it's, it's something to look forward to at the end of the week. Almost.
3: Yeah, exactly. And then I've also, like, I've built more D&D games into my schedule, but for me, that's been a big part of the fun of D&D is getting to spend time with people who you care about and to have that whole idea of we're going to come together, we're going to do something together, and it's going to be something we all create. You know, it's not just the dungeon master who makes this big plan... Of, like, an overarching campaign. It's these players are joining and everybody's making a story together. And it's the story that we choose to tell together that really, you know, the true magic was the friends we made along the way.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Some anime uh, moral or morality. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely.
1: Well, uh, I mean, honestly, I think that's a really beautiful note to end on. The true magic was the friends we made along the way.
2: Like, the friendship. We made today with, yeah, there you <laughs> <go>. with Cam. <laughs> well, uh, Cam, thank you so much for being on our podcast, Waiting for Seconds. It was uh, really, really good to get to know you because mm-hmm. this was kind of my I, my personal chance to get to know you, see who you are, and why. It you was know, you certainly are a way to
3: break the ice a 45 minute <laughs> interview. Uh, yeah. A 45
2: minute interview podcast where, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, uh, before we end the podcast, I want to say thank you to two very important people who have helped in the making of this podcast. I was so bad and didn't remember to mention them in the last three episodes, but from now on, I, or we will be giving shout outs specifically Malcolm and I, uh, sorry, Cam, uh, we'll be giving shout outs to them. The first person I want to thank is uh, Nadia Diaz. She did our cover art for this podcast, and her Instagram is at Arthead Creations: No Spaces, No Caps. That is uh, at Arthead Creations on Instagram. And I will put the link in the description uh, so you can find it there as well. And the second person I want to thank is Jensen Crawl. Uh, who made our intro and outro song for this podcast. So thank you guys so much for helping make this podcast. If you're They're listening. both
1: amazing and did amazing work.
2: Um, but finally, thank you so much, Cam, for uh, talking about yourself on our podcast. I, I really hope you had a good time, and I really appreciate you sharing some deeper parts of your life with us.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me, and uh, good luck with your future podcasts.
1: Thank you very much. uh, I think we'll see you next time.
2: This has been Waiting for Seconds. We'll see you guys later. Bye.